This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You know, some people sure haven't lost their jobs during this pandemic, and that would be the scammers because they are working overtime during this time. The Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre is reporting that complaints in 2020 have doubled over the year before, and Canadians have lost more than a million dollars in COVID-related scams. What kind of scams, though? What should you be on the lookout for? Well, BCSI Investigations President Denny Gagnon has been monitoring the situation since the pandemic began, and he joins us now to talk about what it is he has seen and observed out there. Denny, thank you for being back with us. Morning, Simi, on this beautiful West Coast morning. <laughs> You're being sarcastic, right? It's <laughs> ugly out there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, as COVID has gone up, um, we've noticed that the fraud have also gone up, which is um, a sad situation. And the matter is mostly online at this point because of the accessibility to everyone and the easy accessibility. And um, so what we've seen now is an increase in private companies with offering. And that can go all the way from cleaning your ducts and removing the COVID all the way to false C95 mask and so on. And then with Christmas, you were just talking about Christmas coming and people yeah. ordering. I'm sure people will be ordering some nice masks for Christmas this year. Um, there is all, there's a multitude of frauds that are online. I'll, I'll cover in, in, a, in a few minutes here right. what, how, how you can protect yourself. But it can go all the way from financial loan, financial services, um, using government website that looks legit and with the CERB and the replacement of the CERB now. Um, so there is a multitude of, of, of scams that are being used, and they are increasing at the moment. Let's start with the fact that they're actually using the COVID-19 pandemic to try to scare people and make money off of them. So like you mentioned the, oh, we'll do specialized cleaning in your home. Uh, do, are they offering tests and things door to door too? That's basically it. There's also door-to-door, but they're not as common as before because it's much easier to access individual faceless on the Internet than it is to go door-to-door. As you can be ID now, with, you know, you've got all those new cameras uh, that can you know, basically pick your identity, so it's much harder to go door-to-door. But meanwhile, that still happens, you know. But the main thing is online. And as we're getting into Christmas, it's getting, it, it, you know, it's, it's getting very scary. And the modus operandi by the scammers is that they, they will approach you and say they've noticed some suspicious activity on your logging attempts. They, they'll claim there is a problem with your account. I mean, sometimes they send you a bank that say there is, you know, we would like to verify your identity. You don't even belong to that bank. I get those, right? So they say that you must confirm your personal information. Or they'll send you... One of the recent ones, they'll send you a fake invoice, and you feel like you've never ordered anything from that, and they say that you want to pay the invoice, or would you like to pay, put your credit card, your personal uh, identification, and once you're out there, you know, and you've been scammed, and your uh, identity has been stolen, it is extremely difficult to retrieve all that information. That sounds awful, right? And so, because and they're, it's really the worst because they're taking advantage of our our concern, our worry right now. Yeah, and you know, and they go after things that are common. You know, people, for example, they'll they'll use very large platform like Netflix or any of those, and they'll say your account has to be updated and so on. And this all this is how they they get to you. And basically, it can be anything. It can be anything to that's in demand. And COVID nineteen has created such a demand for whatever. It can be hand sanitizer. It can be mask. It can be and so on. And once they see a door like this, then they basically attack on those and basically through those phishing 
and has nothing to do with you know with fishes. Those fish attack with the pea, and then they go that way. But there is, I'll, I'll give you four steps that you yeah. can protect yourself. And I think it's really important. So you can use security software. There's a multitude of different uh, antivirus and uh, software that can be out there in anti malware. So always run. I probably run a scan probably twice a day on my computer, and that's protected us. You know, here at the office constantly and and we're very very careful with that and we have basically no problem um same thing applies to your phones people put it on their computer but they don't put that antivirus and malware on their phone it's important that you also have it on on your phone multi-factor authentication which means that you know in some cases they will send you a security code and then you are able to put that code which verifies your identity the double multi-factor, I really recommend that in regards to uh, it's harder for the scammer to log into your account if you're using those things to protect yourself, which gives you that code. And then back up, you know, back up your, um, your uh, information. You know, uh, it can be on cloud, right. uh, it can be through an external hard drive and so on. So you're backed up in the case that you get hacked right. and you get approached. So there is ways to deal with it, Simis, but you have to be constantly on top of it and just don't oh, open no. emails that look suspicious. Generally, there's typos often in the header or it's spelled differently. They'll change one letter and that's all you can ID. It looks like a bank, but it's got a letter that's different right. on the header, right? Yeah, that stuff you've got to be really careful of. But the door-to-door stuff is pretty scary too because we just have to use our kind of common sense on that, but you're getting people when they're vulnerable, right? Like there's people who are trying to charge fees to help people fill out their CERB or whatever program it is that they need. Uh, that that really goes to how people are needy right now, like that we they need help. Oh, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, they, they, often they will go after seniors that are not totally versed into certain things. And, you know, and, and in regards to approaching them at their home, they'll go to a senior community and they'll go door to door, for example. You were talking about that. And they'll say they'll get rid of the COVID in their van. So they ca- they're going to do a carpet cleaning to make sure the COVID is not present. And that's not true. Right. And people will pay a large sum of money to have the COVID removed from whatever they do or whatever. Or they'll sell them something that's not a false C9, for a fall N95 yeah. mask. And then people will buy that and then they find out that it is not an N95 mask. So I think the, the buyer and the customer and the, and, 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 and everyone, the citizen have to be really aware that this is out there and it's increasing as the COVID curve is increasing. So are the fraudsters. I'm very wary of anybody going door to door these days. And I feel bad because I know there's a lot of charities out there that are hurting. But if people want to donate money, I feel like they should really call them up and get the legit place to donate money, not rely on people coming to your door. There's two key words. It's called due diligence, right? So make sure that you're giving to the right people and make sure if you need to pick up the phone and say, did you send me that email and confirm that it's coming from a certain party, then do it. Yeah, that's a good plan, too. All right, Denny, thank you so much for helping us out with that this morning. You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too. That is Denny Gagnon, president of BCSI Investigations. He's been monitoring the kind of frauds and scams that have been going on during the pandemic. According to the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, complaints this year have doubled. Lots of people out there trying to take advantage in COVID-related scams. So unfortunately, people do have to be on, uh, on alert about that kind of stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's take a look and talk about that debate last night between U.S. President Donald Trump and the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. It was very different from the first debate. Uh, The mute button probably helped, but both candidates were definitely uh, not as shouty as they were the first time. Uh, Let's talk to Peter Marinell, CBS correspondent, for more on this. Good morning, Peter. 
Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Yeah. So was it the candidates that behaved or do you think everybody had just learned their lesson from the first time? Well, I think the person who learned the lesson was Donald J. Trump. Uh, compared to the first debate's food fight, last night's face-off was more of a quiet dinner. Uh, that might be something of an overstatement. There, there was some, some hearty back and forth, but I didn't see any real move-the-needle moment uh, for any voter here in the U.S. who's still on the fence, and, and we'd be hard-pressed to find many undecided voters out there. Yeah, do you think it comes maybe perhaps a little bit too late for the president? Uh, well, it, it could be if the polls are to be believed. Uh, I'm among those of the school that, uh, you know, I don't want to take a ride on the polar coaster after what happened in 2016 here when at this point uh, in the election uh, campaign, so many people thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. In fact, you're talking to a guy who was uh, walking the streets of Manhattan preparing to go into the CBS News uh, newsroom the day of the debate, the day, I'm sorry, of the election, thinking, well, Tomorrow morning, I'll be able to call my granddaughters and say, we have a woman president. <laughs> oh, the polar coaster, by the way. That is hilarious. Very funny. Uh, but what, what change do you think in particular in terms of the demeanor from the first debate to this one? Because we know that that first one turned a lot of people off. Was this an effort, do you think, to try to win some people back? Yes, absolutely. We do know from uh, talking to aides to Donald Trump that he was counseled to, you know, stay cool and not to, to jump on the moderator comments or uh, his opponent Joe Biden's uh, remarks. And, and by and large, he did not. Uh, you know, as you noted, the, the microphones were turned off for the two-minute uh, first response uh, on each side to the moderator's topics. Right. And so that really did make it. In fact, at one point, the president also complimented the moderator. Yes, he did. Uh, full disclosure, uh, Kristen Welker, an NBC News White House correspondent and uh, broadcast host, is uh, a longtime friend of mine. Yeah, you know, at, at one point, uh, Trump said to her, you know, so far I respect very much the way you're handling this. This was after he trashed her on uh, Twitter earlier in the day. Uh, yeah, ouch on that one. Okay, so what did the two candidates, like, I, I imagine everybody's bracing, and you as a correspondent covering this as well, Peter, for this last uh, 10, 11 days of the campaign. Look, uh, the debate last night and, and everything from now until November 3rd uh, is going to be all about uh, what is known here as GOTV, get out the vote. Uh, but, you know, we, we've got a, a very unusual situation here uh, with a record-breaking nearly 47 million people already voting, even though Election Day, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, still, what, 11 yeah. days off. Uh, this has turned into election days here, driven by the pandemic and concerns about crowded polling places on November 3rd. So, you know, did the debate move the, the meter very much? Uh, very doubtful. All right, Peter, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Hey, just great to be with you uh, on a station in one of my favorite cities in the world. Thank you. So nice to hear that. Thank you. Have a good time. That's Peter Maris, CBS correspondent covering the U.S. election. Uh, Nice that people still think about coming here because, quite frankly, uh, we miss the tourism, don't we? This is Mornings with Simi. Would you welcome back more tourism if people took a rapid COVID-19 test at the airport when they arrived? 
Well, international travelers entering the Calgary airport are soon going to have the option of doing just that, and it will help to reduce the amount of time they actually have to self-quarantine. Now, this program is the first of its kind in Canada. We wanted to talk about the implications of this. So joining us is Walt Judas, CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Uh, Walt, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. Nice to be here. What do you think of this program? Well, it gives us a ray of hope, that's for sure. If Alberta's pilot works, other provinces are likely to follow suit, and the federal government will have no choice but to seriously consider relaxing some of the border restrictions. We're pleased that Alberta has taken this step. Often it takes one province to lead an initiative like this, while the other provinces monitor the progress before deciding whether to implement the same thing. It's not a new program in other parts of the world. Places like Hawaii have implemented something similar, as has Greece and other countries. So we think it has a lot of merit. It may sound crazy at the time with COVID-19 cases rising, but on the other hand, we need to work toward a plan to reopen borders to non-essential travel at some point. Do you think that this is something BC should seriously look at? No question. And there are a number of organizations and uh, and forums trying to move in that direction. In fact, the Pacific Northwest Economic Region has been calling for something similar for quite some time. There's the Future Borders Coalition, all kind of working toward the same goal. And we think, as I say, it has some merit and it could go forward provided all the health and safety protocols are in place, the testing is proven effective. If the pilot works, let's move on it. If it doesn't work, you can always rescind the program and look to try something else. Right. Is the concern, I guess, like how accurate are these rapid COVID-19 tests? Yeah, and that's difficult for me to answer, Mm -hmm. but I would like to think that uh, much of that testing has already taken place. So something effective is in place that they can pilot and hopefully as i say it produces the desired results and we start to see international travel again it's uh, it's absolutely paramount to the success of our industry going forward the international market are the high yield visitors now we don't want to be careless about this we're not trying to suggest that we should open our borders to anyone and everyone but if we can have either bubble countries or put a plan in place that allows for a graduated approach to international travel. I think that's really the route to go. Would YVR, do you think, be able to handle something like this? I mean, obviously, the Calgary airport is smaller than YVR. Uh, Could we do it on a larger basis, do you think? No question. In fact, that's what the Future Borders Coalition is working toward, having a system in place whereby you can welcome people from other countries. Now, one of the things that we've been suggesting for many, many months now is that it's one thing to close the borders on a month-to-month basis, and that's not terribly helpful, but it's quite another if we put a plan in place that has a number of criteria and work toward a specific opening. The problem is, at present, we don't have a plan in Canada, so we don't know whether uh, government would look at criteria such as having a vaccine in place or the rapid testing or the positivity rate dropping below a certain percentage. We just don't know what the factors are. So that's what we're trying to work toward, and rapid testing is certainly a good start. So you're saying we need to set a threshold. 
we need to have a goal that we work towards. Exactly. It's, uh, it's very disconcerting for our industry to try to plan on a month-to-month basis. And uh, every time you get close to the 21st of the month, the federal government announces another extension. If we were to look toward, let's say, March 1st as a potential reopening to non-essential travel, at least that gives us a window to work toward. And we might have some criteria that is in place that all of us collectively can uh, help to achieve. And, mm-hmm. and that's really what the tourism industry needs. And Walt, has the, is the industry working on some of that criteria? Uh, like it would be better, I guess, if it came from the industry. Yeah, we've been talking to government about it for several months now. And in fact, um, as I mentioned before, those groups, PANWAR and the Future Borders Coalition, are working together with government on that criteria. The provincial government has it in place as part of phase four. Uh, they've been fairly clear about that right from the start. It's the federal government that we need to work on because they're the ones that are really dictating whether the border is open or not. So, yes, much of that is in place, but we also look to what other jurisdictions around the world are doing. What is their criteria? What has worked? What hasn't worked? And as I mentioned before, if, uh, if something is put in place and we find that we're regressing, then you can always uh, shut it down and try something else at another point. But we need a target date for that international travel at some point. So it sounds like we're all going to be very carefully watching what happens in Calgary. No question. All right, Walt, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Walt Judas, CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. This is Mornings with Simi. While we're talking, of course, about the election, which is tomorrow, 1.1 million people have already voted, but there are still hundreds of thousands of people who have to cast their vote. And if we look at the polls, we can see that, well, not much has changed from the beginning of this election. The last poll before the election by Ipsos Public Affairs came out just at 7 o'clock this morning. Let's break it down a little bit more with the help of Senior Vice President Kyle Braid. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Simi. Now, did you just show us the same poll from the beginning and that was it? Well, I'm going to have to have a word with my team. I told them, (laughs) send me some different results this time so I have something to talk about. And I think they just dusted off the last two and changed a couple of numbers here and there. Um, the only thing we see here is, you know, the Greens are up marginally. Sonia First and Al's numbers are up quite a bit, so there is is a change. Uh, but other than that, solid NDP lead pretty much right across the province, all age groups. Everything looks hunky-dory for John Horgan. This is, and this is the closest, like this is very close to an election, right? I mean, I know the problem in 2013 was that with the result, with the, the election on a Monday or Tuesday, I think it was, it was tough to get some last-minute polling done. Uh, well, you're being kind. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there, there certainly was some last-minute movement in the, last, in, in the 2013 election. Plus, there were a whole bunch of young NDP voters who, who didn't show up because they thought they had it in the bag. But being honest, there was some pretty bad polling that took place, and I think we've improved it since then. Okay, so even, if you, even accounting for some mistakes, though, this looks like a, a fairly insurmountable lead here. It does. I haven't seen anything so far that suggests that we have a 2013 scenario, and and the dynamics are different. Wilkinson is not Christy Clark. He doesn't campaign and deliver a message as well as she did. There's not the mood for change that there was in 2013, and I mentioned those young voters. Um, This time around, the NDP leads with, with the old folks, too, who are reliable to come out to vote, so none of the fundamentals suggest that there could be a shift here and and as i'm sure you've talked about you know we've already got a million votes 
in the in, that have been not counted, but are uh, passed already. Are, yeah. are, are passed. Um, so you know, even if NDP voters think think they have this thing uh, all said and done, most of them have, or at least a lot of them have already voted. So uh, it it still could turn into a scenario if if NDP voters yeah. voters don't show up that on election day tomorrow, that, you know, that 51% could turn into something in, you know, the, the high to mid forties, but that's not going to risk losing a majority. So let's talk about what issues have remained consistent at the top of the list for people. Cause I know you asked about that as well. Yeah, they haven't shifted. It's there's five at the top. COVID obviously is, uh, is the number one issue and has remained the number one issue. And COVID relates to things like healthcare and and the economy. It certainly has big impacts on those two issues, and they're near the top of the list. Also, cost of living and cost of housing, not surprisingly, in uh, in BC is is an issue. But the, the bigger point is on all five of those issues, including the economy. Uh, the NDP is seen as the party that's best able to handle them. And if the Liberals were going to make a dent in this election, they needed to move the needle on the economy numbers, and, and they haven't managed to do that. Did they move the needle on anything? Uh, the Liberals? Did, yeah. I don't have it right in front of me, but they did not move the needle on anything. Uh, Wilkinson's numbers didn't improve as, as best premier. They didn't move up on any of the issues whatsoever. Uh, their campaign by a ratio of about two and a half to one uh, has people saying that they've worsened impressions than, than improved impressions. So the good news is for the liberals is despite the poor numbers that they have in our poll, their vote numbers haven't shifted, which just shows, just goes to show that, you know, they have a pretty strong base that they're going to support liberal and maybe better put won't vote NDP right. no matter what. Um, so despite these poor numbers, um, that liberal vote's still going to get out. Uh, and we may not see a scenario here, you know, where the liberals yeah. push way below you know, 30 seats, they're, they're still going to be competitive in a lot of ridings in this province. What I found really interesting about the results was outside of Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island, when you get into the rest of the province, the southern interior and the north, areas where the BC Liberals have always tended to have kind of a lock on things, it's competitive there. It is. It's a statistical tie. And, you know, if, if I want to point to some numbers in the poll that have me the most leery or worried it's it's those numbers outside of outside of those uh in the interior or the north you know i just it's just it's just hard to believe that the liberals aren't you know running away with it there because that's what they've done in the past elections including the uh, the last one but the numbers show it competitive uh and it hasn't been competitive for a long time Okay, so after an election is over, then Kyle, do you go back? Is that like also a busy time for you? Because then you're trying to compare what happened to what you guys were predicting? Uh, Well, this is going to be a weird one, of course, because we're going to get results on election night, and then we're going to have to wait two weeks to get the mail-in stuff. And our results uh, show that things should shift a little in the NDP's favor as those mail-in votes get counted because the NDP has an even bigger lead among uh, those who voted by mail. So, yeah, we're going to be doing that post-analysis by region and by demographics to see you know, what worked and, and, and what didn't uh, and learn the lessons that we can, but we may have to wait two weeks to figure it all out. Oh, just like us then, just like yep. everybody. All right, Kyle, thank you so much. Thank you, Simi. Skyle Braid, the Senior Vice President of Ipsos. They have a, the last public poll out this morning about BC's election. You can read all about it at globalnews.ca where he breaks down all of those numbers for you. But essentially, 
nothing really has changed since the beginning of the campaign. And when you think about some of the promises that were made during this election campaign, and I'm thinking right off the top of my head, as Vaughn Palmer pointed out, the huge BC Liberal promise to uh, suspend the PST for one year and then half it for the year after that. That is a 7 to $8 billion promise, uh, one of, if not the largest uh, big, like costly campaign promise that we've ever seen in an election here in BC, and it didn't resonate with voters. I think that just goes to show you where everybody's mind is still collectively at. They're thinking pandemic, right? Thinking COVID-19, thinking how are we going to get through this? It's not surprising that that puts the healthcare system at the top of the list of people's concerns right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Hard to believe, but it's been more than 10 years since that awful windstorm devastated all those trees in Stanley Park and Prospect Point in particular. And now the Stanley Park Ecology Society has just released a new kind of state of the park report. So let's find out what they found. Joining us is the Conservation Projects Manager, Ariane Como. Ariane, thank you very much for being here. Yes, thank you for having me. So is this something that started after that big storm? Yeah, so the first State of the Park report that uh, we released was back in 2010, so a few years after the, the windstorm. And um, the windstorm really made uh, us realize that there was no consolidated document of all the information that is known about the park. So that's why uh, uh, at, the, at the time we, we thought it was important to make a State of the Park report and gather this information. Okay. And so. Yeah, and so 10 years later now, we wanted to see how things have changed in those last 10 years. And so what kind of information do you gather? What do you look at? Yeah, so we look at the different ecosystems and how they're doing and how they're changing. So for our State of the Park report, we used uh, four indicators for the health of the the ecology of the park. So we looked at the freshwater ecosystems, uh, terrestrial ecosystems, um, intertidal ecosystems, as well as uh, looking at climate and atmosphere uh, data that exists for for that. Okay, and what about tree cover? Because like, that was a big concern, right? That we lost so many big trees during that storm. Yeah, and so back then, uh, uh, the two following years after the big windstorm of 2006, there were lots of people that came together, lots of money was put toward uh, uh, restoration and stewardship of the blowdown areas. And so there were 15,000 trees and shrubs that were planted at the time. Wow. So, uh, yeah, and so later, we so now we decided to look at recover if it has recovered since uh, since the plantation, and so we were able to look uh, compare data from 2013 and 2018. So uh, after the plantation, and there's from that analysis, there's an eight percent increase in tree cover. Really? Okay, so that would seem like it's that's a positive. Yeah. Okay, so the tree cover is improving then. Do we still have to plant more though? Like what are we doing? No, at this point, the uh, the the blowdown areas are pretty uh, healthy and resilient. So even on top of the plantation, it seems like the, the other plants, the native plants that were around were able to also uh, come back and uh, take the space. I think the planting was especially important because uh, invasive plants, they mm-hmm. often take over uh, disturbed areas. So, um, and we have to remember, Stanley Park is 
is not an untouched uh, natural area. It is an urban park. So there's lots of invasive species and it's important to um, to just take care right. of the park and help it as much as possible. Uh, any concerns about the seawall? How is that doing? Uh, yeah, so we are lo- we were looking at, at level rise and just, uh, uh, again, we didn't collect the data for that. There's the governmental data that exists. And so uh, some of the anticipated impacts of level rise on the park would be, um, so there's going to be, uh, the water is going to come higher and higher uh, near the seawall and just hit the seawall more often. The waves are expected to get stronger and stronger. So it could break down the seawall more often and that can be expensive. So um, the, the city of Vancouver, I know they are looking at different ways to adapt uh, to sea level rise and mitigate the, right. the effects of that. Okay. And what about Beaver Lake? How is Beaver Lake doing? Yeah, so for Beaver Lake, we looked, so we use different measures to look at how the different ecosystems are doing. So at Beaver Lake, we were looking at uh, water temperatures and the maximum temperature that it gets to in the summer, and as well as looking at dissolved oxygen. Uh, so these two measures were a bit alarming. So in the summer, the uh, water temperature reached really high temperature and dissolved oxygen, that's the level of oxygen uh, available in water, were really low at times as well. And so that's that's not ideal for many aquatic species that live in the water. So if if Beaver Lake, um, if you want Beaver Lake to, to be a place where aquatic life can survive, uh, there are ways, uh, so back then, in, back in 2011, uh, the Vancouver Park Board came up with some Stanley Park Ecological Action Plan and mm-hmm. come with some ways to mitigate these these things. So the, it's not something new. Uh, we already knew that with Beaver Lake that uh, it's infilling at right. a rapid rate due to different things. But uh, so so right now, wa- the water quality is uh, is not ideal. Right. Sounds like we have a lot of work to do. But Ariane, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. That's Ariane Camo, who is the Conservation Projects Manager with the Stanley Park Ecology Society. They've just released their 10-year State of the Park report. And while a lot has improved since that huge windstorm that did so much damage, uh, there is still some work to do, particularly in the Beaver Lake area. This is Mornings with Simi so excited to talk to our next guest. Well, the Vancouver Writers Fest is currently underway and we had the chance to talk to our next guest and of course we were going to grab it. It's Kevin Kwan, author of the wildly popular book Crazy Rich Asians and if you didn't read the book, I'm sure you saw the movie. Uh, it is fantastic and of course there was a trilogy there but his most recent work is the book Sex and Vanity which is pretty different actually. It's more of an homage to A Room with a View. How do you get there? Well, we're going to find out. Kevin Kwan joins us now. Kevin, thanks for being here. Hey, it's great to be here. Good morning. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your latest book, Sex and Vanity. Why go in this different direction? Did you think, I just need to do something different? <laughs> you know, that was partly it. Um, you know, after spending three books, you know, over 1,500 pages in Asia, I wanted to go to Italy and New York and, and set a book in two of my favorite places. And what better way to do that than to pay homage to one of my favorite movies and books of all time, A Room of View. 
Yeah, that's a great one. I remember that very vividly as well. Um, are, are you a bit surprised by how successful, though, like Crazy Rich Asians has become? The movie was huge. I mean, I didn't even expect the book to be published. You know, I was writing it, writing it as a hobby that I thought I would self-publish and share with friends. So, yeah, it's been <laughs> more than a surprise. It's been a huge shock. And I know people kind of loved seeing the opulence in there, but that is an environment that you kind of grew up in, right? You were you grew up in Singapore until you were 11 before moving to the United States. I was. You know, I, I didn't grow up in the sort of bling-bling world, but I was exposed to it quite a bit. You know, I, I would go to friends' houses and, and you know, discover that they had shark ponds in their living rooms, for example. Um, I would go to, you know, so I, I would see these things, you know, very often in my childhood, but I myself did not grow up, you know, you know, gilded universe. Right, right. When did you <laughs> When did you think, you know what, I've got some stories here that I can write about this because you've been in graphic design. There's a lot of work you have done that was not writing. Yeah, you know, it really, really wasn't until I moved to New York in my 20s when I would start telling friends these stories of my childhood and also my adventures whenever I traveled back to Asia, you know, discovering cities like Hong Kong and Manila and Bangkok and, and just the, the crazy rich details that I was finding there and sharing with friends that people were urging me, please write this down. You know, we've never heard anything like this before. So that's what I basically started to do. And did it come easily to you? It did. You know, I think because there was no pressure, I really had no plan for it other than to record a lot of memories and tell little fun stories. I thought I would, I would have an audience of five. Um, it was a fun project to write. What, um, never did I anticipate that it would, you know, take on this amazing no life. Kidding, no kidding. Amazing <laughs> life. Yeah. What kind of reaction do you get now from people who perhaps recognize themselves in what you have written? You know, it really runs the gamut. Uh, for the most part, it's extremely complimentary. You know, there, there are people these days that actually claim to have been in my books that I've never heard of in my life. Um, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you know, they meet other people. They meet John Chu, the director of my movie, or producers, and they go, oh, I was the inspiration for this character. I was the inspiration for Astrid and things like that. And, and it's, it's to, I, it, I take it as a compliment. They, they feel like they are in my book and I know them. Well, you know, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps they like the book, right? So it's, it's been very, very positive. And of course, from the Asian and Asian American, Asian Canadian community, you know, they, they really love having the representation yeah. on screen and on totally. the page. That is so, so true. Uh, so how important was it for you to be involved in the movie version of this? Like, were there certain things where you thought, listen, I want this to stay true to this? Absolutely. And I think from the start, the great thing was the producers who I partnered with wanted this participation. You know, they wanted me to be there to ensure the authenticity of everything that they were trying to do. So it was really kind of a win-win for all of us. And I was really introduced to the world of filmmaking and it's it's stuck you know i i love being part of my movies now and helping to make sure they are perfect in every possible way now we talked about your latest work which is called sex and vanity very much a tribute to a room with a view which once again is about kind of the layers of society and the perceptions within society what is it do you think about that topic that fascinates you you know, human nature of all sorts fascinates me, and especially snobbery. You know, I, 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 find, <laughs> I find the mind of the snob to be a fascinating one because I can't quite understand. <laughs> the mind of the why. snob, I love that. That's <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, to me it's, it's deeply fascinating because you know, snobbery to me comes from a place of insecurity. Ultimately, I think, if you, if you feel like you are better than 
someone else. Obviously, you're the one with the problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, so to, to see the, the layers of snobbery that exist in society and the games people play to try to infiltrate these various levels of society, um, I find it, you know, endlessly fascinating being a complete outsider to this world, you know. Which must make it so fascinating to you when people do try to say that, oh, I'm such and such a character, because you're like, do you realize what I was saying in that book about snobbery in class? Exactly. You know, a lot of times people don't realize um, that the books are satire. And I use satire on purpose to really kind of define a story and hopefully make people think more about what what is actually going on here. <laughs> am I celebrating it or am I actually kind of poking fun at the situation exactly. right now? You know, this bachelor party on a barge, you know, <laughs> or whatever it may be. Are there more Kevin Kwan movies coming? I really hope so. Um, Sony Pictures and SK Global have um, optioned the rights to Sex and Vanity, and they are very, very excited to hopefully start making this movie next summer. Oh, love it. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Kevin. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Anytime. We love your books. That's Kevin Kwan, of course, the author of Crazy Rich Asians, the trilogy that went with that. His most recent work is called Sex and Vanity. He describes it as an homage to E.M. Forster's Room with a View. So once again, very much about class, society, and as he puts it, snobbery. I'm sure it is fantastic. So excited that we had the chance to talk to him. The Vancouver Writers Fest is currently underway. We should mention that Kevin will be in conversation with Doretta Lau on Sunday afternoon at 1 p.m. Just check it out online, Vancouver Writers Fest.